Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Good morning. Inaugural sermon from a new pulpit made by Corey Jenkins. Yeah. With a little help from Patrick Gibson, right? Okay. There you go. We're in Jonah chapter 4. Be finishing out the book this morning. Jonah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. The author writes, Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that it displeased Jonah exceedingly that God had relented from destroying Nineveh. And so Jonah was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well? To be angry. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. But when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city 
in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this little book, and we do pray that its big message would be powerfully pressed home to our hearts. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Let it affect us in every way that you've intended it to do so. By the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Romans 9, rightly called the justification of God in saving sinners. Not just the justification of sinners by God, but the justification of God in saving sinners. Paul tells us that Israel not believing was not the word of God failing but instead succeeding in saving those God chose to save. It teaches about grace applied to this one and that one, but not to that one or the other. Grace applied not to all, but to so many. And even then, not on the basis of the person themselves, not on anything especially drawing about them that might bring God to to bless them in that way, but solely on the basis of God's free grace and good pleasure. And as he articulates this, Paul begins to justify God because it seems he feels like he has to justify God in that. He anticipates this question, is there injustice on God's part in this? And to that, he only says what God has said in Exodus chapter 33. Paul just quotes God in Romans 9, and he says to that question, is there injustice on God's part? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have have compassion, so then, Paul adds, salvation depends on God, and not on human will or exertion. It depends on God who has mercy. And my wife Jenny and I have given hours to understanding that as best as we can, but never both, I think she would say as well, but never both of us to the same degree of delight and joy and worship. There is an acceptance of that reality because it's undeniably in the Bible. But what if God is after more? What if he's after more than just mere acceptance of his sovereignty and salvation? What if he's after more than, well, you know, it's, it's not what I like, but it is what it is, so I suppose it's best for me to be good, however regrettably, with the truth of it. What if God's after a heart that's in line, attitude and affection with his own heart. Beloved, 
that salvation belongs to the Lord is the banner truth. It's the big message of this little book. And it's been commissioning us in view of God's grace to us, in view of God's grace to you, even from the depths of our sin, Jonah 2, stay ready, Jonah 1, to preach the gospel with, Jonah 3, a God-sized vision of simple faithfulness. And today, Jonah 4, it adds and closes with this, that whether God's chosen to save with or against our own wills, that's His right. And rather than be angry about that, we are to rejoice in that. We're to rejoice that He is a Savior at all. And so Jonah 4 is Romans 9 in real time for us. If you wrestle, if you wrestle with God being God, if you prefer Him act as you would act, If you've known the truth and you've seen the text, but you've regretted it, you've talked angrily against it or kept a poor affection about it. If you've known mercy, but despised mercy being made known. Well, let's come to the passage. Picking up in verse 1 and see Jonah angry with God. Jonah is angry at the ministry and the ministerial success that God has given him. So let me remind us of something I said last Lord's Day, how thankfulness for grace is a great preservative in ministry. And how so long is that oppression, that impression, sorry, not oppression, that impression abided in Jonah. Jonah would go on as God had called him. As long as he was grateful, as long as he was thankful, he would go as God has called him. But you see, our chapter now begins with a but. But it displeased Jonah greatly. And it begins that way because soon as Nineveh was found, Jonah's gratitude was lost. That preserving impression was lost. The grace of that great fish salvation was a thing of the forgettable past, and that's how we end up where we are with Jonah now exceedingly displeased with this sovereign pleasure of God. He sees no good in this glorious display of God's goodness towards Nineveh. In fact, if your Bible notes it like mine notes it, the narrator tells us that Jonah thinks the sparing of Nineveh to be an evil thing. So just let this sink in. We said, again a week ago, the only way God could justly spare this evil city, the justice of God that was due to them, was through the still future grace of Christ crucified and raised from the dead. And as a prophet, Jonah had to be somewhat aware of this, that God saves sinners by substitution, that He satisfies His justice against our sin by executing it upon one without sin, Jesus. In other words, Nineveh, as you and I and any, is saved by the justice of grace. The justice of grace. 
And Jonah is then here and now calling the justice of grace evil. And in doing so, he identifies himself with that credo of the lost and unbelieving world that what's evil to God is good and what's good to God is evil, which is not at all a very good place for our souls to be. So, if I can revisit one other thing we've learned, recall this, how God cares less about giving us the ministry we want than he does about giving us the ministry we need to make us more like Jesus. How Jonah needed this ministry to Nineveh just as much as Nineveh needed this ministry through Jonah. Beloved, listen. Hearts are often so very slow to change. Sins are not easily put in the grave and in our rear view. It is evident by Jonah just how much constant help and divine attendance we need to have Jesus increasingly and appreciably formed within us. Just think, just think now. Jonah has run from God's command. He's been content to see sinners perish. He's implied he would rather die than disclose grace for their deliverance. And then thinking that he would die, he's instead been disciplined, only disciplined at sea. He's then been rescued from those depths. He's been given 72 hours in a fish belly to recalibrate his heart. He's then been spit out on solid ground, a first-hand recipient of a miracle upon which he goes to Nineveh and he preaches. And as we all would rejoice, I hope to receive, God blesses the preaching of this flawed prophet to the repentance of an entire city. From the throne to the brothels. Jonah's been this instrument of awakening in Nineveh, and in all that, all of that, God, along with many other things, has been hotly pursuing the cultivation of a Christ-like heart in Jonah. Dear ones, why has God saved us? Why does He grant you all the things that make up your life? Romans 8, 29. That you would be conformed to the image of His Son. It's that we'd be increasingly embodying God's own character and heart. Jonah here should be radiant. Is it not the most insane thing that you come to chapter 4, verse 1, and he's not radiant with joy at the ministry that God has given him? But instead, he is exceedingly bitter and he is blasphemously angry over it. For all God's grace to him, all God's done for him, Jonah is still more Jonah 
unless Jesus. He's still the same. He's still Jonah. At heart, he is, for the most part, unchanged. And just so then, he is a wake-up call to you and me that when it comes to serving God, nearness to God's heart matters most. What is anything, Paul asks, if we have not love? 1 Corinthians 13. What is knowledge? All knowledge. All faith. Spiritual gift to prophesy. Faith that moves mountains. What is any of that if you have not love? Jonah is a prophet. Jonah has prophesied. Jonah knows the glory of God as we're about to consider. Jonah can recite it here in a prayer to God. He can quote Scripture. He seems to have read, say, Exodus 34, Psalm 103, Joel chapter 2. He's well acquainted with the biblical text and biblical theology. Jonah has tasted and seen a grace and a mercy himself personally that knows no bounds. And yet, though he has so many things a congregation may laud as commendable in their next pastor, Jonah's heart is sinfully small, hugely prideful, and ministerially diseased. Like many who do so very much for God without enjoining God to do what's so very necessary in them. So much dead formality, so little formative fellowship with the Lord. So friends, Jonah's not just angry with the ministry God gave him, but see then also, he is angry with God. What I mean is, he's not just angry with what God has done. He's angry with God Himself. He's angry with God for being God. As one put it, Jonah cannot stand the Lord. Do you see that in verse 2? It's one of the strangest prayers I've ever seen. God has done something marvelous in our eyes. And Jonah prays, See, <laughs> that's why I didn't want to go. That's why I didn't want to go. That's why I didn't want to preach to them. That's why I tried to flee away, not just from the word of the Lord. You remember this from Jonah 1? That's why I tried to flee away from you, Lord. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I knew you would spare Nineveh and I hate that. With every fiber of my being, indeed, I hate you, Lord. You may think that's taking it a bit too far, Brian, but that's what he says in the passage. 
Beloved, what we have here is a recounting of God's own self-disclosure to Moses at Sinai, which Indrajit read for us in our call to worship. It's God's own preaching. This is not Moses. This is the Lord preaching. His own sovereign goodness. It's God revealing His glory and how it is that He will stick it out with stiff-necked people like Jonah. It's that the God that is is a God unchangeably and most beautifully weighted in His essential being to save sinners. And that's where we all should go. Hallelujah. Believing that is not Jonah's problem. But in case it is for you, don't miss this. That at the blazing center of who God is as God, again, His essential glory, is this thrilling inclination not to not save, but to save the ungodly. That's why Christ crucified is the clearest sight of God we have this side of heaven. That's why we get Luke 15s in the Bible where we're repeatedly told of this capital J joy that explodes before the angels above when any one sinner repents. It's not the joy of the angels. It's God rejoicing. God is Savior. Now, Nahum follows Jonah. And George gets to talk a lot about how God is also just. But God is Savior. So as it must, please let this truth do its work in your your heart. Maybe you haven't seen so many people saved. Maybe you've forgotten that you have been saved. (laughs) Maybe you've labored so long with one or two or many and and, and failing to see them converted, you've, you've become jaded. You are angry with God. You are very doubtful that a certain soul can be saved and that even if they would be saved, God can't do it. Or worse, or worse, God wouldn't. In an ironic way, if that's you, as I know that it is me from time to time, let Jonah's faith (laughs) reprove us there to say nothing of God's actual activity in this book. For all of his awful, and there is a lot of awful with Jonah, Jonah is so settled in the truth 
that God is the Savior of the ungodly. We have the story. In other words, he's so settled in the truth that God is the Savior of the ungodly, he runs from his charge. Believe this. God is more inclined to save sinners than you are. You can have the biggest heart for the conversion of the lost in the history of mankind, and it will still be infinitely small compared to God's own heart for this. It's straight pride and error to think otherwise. Just because he might not save who we want, when we want. And this chapter says, if that's us, we need to repent. Now then, while Jonah's problem is not that God hasn't saved who he wants, when he wants, but that God has saved who Jonah didn't want, no matter when, the same principles at play. Jonah hates how the saving God has applied his saving grace. He's angry at the sovereignty of the Savior. He's angry that he, Jonah, does not get to pick and choose who God saves. He's angry that he's not the one calling the shots. He's angry that he's not God. But you and I should praise God that Jonah is not God. Because if Jonah had his way, sinners like you and me would have no shot of being saved. Because you and I, as Gentiles, would not have met Jonah's criteria for the deserving. Do you praise God every morning and throughout the day that, as Paul says, by grace... You have been saved. On the flip side, if you were in control, is there anybody you wouldn't save? I'll be honest now. Are there any who have been so hurtful to you in your life? Are there any who are so frightening, terrifying? Are there any in the history of man who have been so God-awful as human beings that you would leave to judgment? The Apostle Paul would say that he was one of those. And that man who might have deserved hell more than anybody else, is in heaven because of grace. Low key. Are there any folks that you had opportunity to share the gospel with this week and you just didn't? And you didn't because they weren't like you. They looked out of it. You saw them, they seemed mad. 
They looked rough. They looked like a difficult catch. They seemed unlikely to believe the gospel. You don't know that. That's just going on in your mind. Because if we would rather just go on about our life than see those people who are different from ourselves live to God, that is Jonah in us. We're not as soaked in God as God would have us be. Apropos, God spares a city of human beings, but they're Ninevites. And the prophet, verse 3, wants to die. He would rather God take him out of the world than leave him in a world where God's salvation embraces the world. Where in Romans chapter 9, if we can return there, Paul says, hypothetically speaking, he would rather go to hell if it meant sinners being saved. And whereas Jesus literally bore our condemnation that we might become heirs of salvation, Jonah here is begging to die because God has saved Assyrian souls. That is how far removed he is from the heart of God. Jonah is angry with God. And it is an ungodly look for the prophet of God. It is a wonder then that we now turn to God's gentleness with Jonah. His gentleness, even to say it, is stunning. If that is stunning to us, if that's surprising to us, we have not yet understood the depths, the heights, the breadths, and the lengths of God's grace and love towards His own. <laughs> how, how would you and I have treated Jonah at this point? If he's part of a, you know, a, a league of prophets, T4G conference together for the gospel, right? How are all those guys treating Jonah? You're out of the conference. We're no longer in league with you, Jonah. Would we have done what God does for Jonah and pursued him and rescued him and utilized him and after this, continued to do that? What would you say to Jonah here? What tact would you take with him? And after so many fruitless course corrections in his life, might not we as a church, have disciplined him from our fellowship? Would we go to him again? This is the question. Would we go to him again in gentle grace with words designed, please God, to move his stubborn heart toward the Lord's own heart? Do you know out of all of God's excellencies, which one David accredited for his greatness? I believe it's in Psalm 18. It was the gentleness of God. 
Your gentleness has made me great. And that's what we see now picking up in verse 4. God offers a question to help expose Jonah's heart. Do you do well, Jonah, to be angry? Right? It's not a bold denouncement. It's not a justified condemnation. It's not even as yet a kind correction. It is an incisive question. God wants Jonah and you and me to think on it. Is your anger with me and the administration of my grace, is it justified? Is it right? Are you right and am I wrong? Now God knows the answer to that but that he's still willing to hear from Jonah and prod him Godward instead of throwing him back into the sea so that Nemo could finish the meal that he started. That is the gentleness of God. Growing great souls in Christ isn't always as much about giving the right answers as it is about asking the right questions. And God does this perfectly well. Do you do well to be angry? And with that, we probably come to a flashback to just after chapter 3, verse 4, and our verse 5. You see, Jonah goes out of the city, at this point still apparently unsure, of what God will do with it. And he builds himself a shade booth from which he hopes to sit and watch the city burn. And while he stews, like as he is mad at the world, what grace we still see. Is it not remarkable that while God has concerned himself was sparing thousands upon thousands upon thousands within the city of perishing souls. He, at the same time, concerns himself with the one crotchety prophet sitting outside the city. That while Jonah grabs his popcorn, hoping for a reenactment of Jericho or Sodom and Gomorrah, Give me fire. Give me sulfur. It will help my popcorn pop. God, at the same time, the sovereign over all, appoints a plant to exist, to grow, to grow really, really fast, and to grow over Jonah, and don't miss the language here, verse 6, to save him from his discomfort like a loving father pulling a blanket over his child at the end of the day, notwithstanding the child and their really bad behavior that day. Is there anything more becoming of God's character in verse 2 than adding His grace in verse 6 to this boiling pot of pouting stew that we know as Jonah? Is there anything more comforting than knowing that God knows 
the worst about us, perfectly and eternally, and yet as here, He continues to love us and attend to us in order to make us like Jesus. This is love for the hater that the hater might finally become loving. It's that Jonah might become grateful again and perhaps truly gracious for the first time in the story. And you see, Jonah is greatly gladdened by this gift of God, exceedingly angry that God would spare thousands of souls. He's exceedingly glad that God would spare his little head from the heat. But the intended lesson has only just begun. As was apparently carved into Job's heart, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And then what does that righteous man say? Blessed. There is so much humility and righteousness in that word. Blessed. He's taken everything away from me. Blessed be His name. Jonah knows nothing about that. As in ministry, so also in life, sweet providences may be followed by really, really bitter ones. Comforts may suddenly give way to discomforts. The wind that was at one time at your back will shift abruptly to your face and it will steal away your breath. It will steal away your life and it will cause you to become faint. So here, in verses 7 and 8, in the morning at dawn, the same gentle Lord who had appointed the plant, and we all love the plant, right? Then also, sovereign, then also appointed a worm to attack the appointed plant until it withered away so that he might further appoint a scorching wind to attack Jonah's head. So the Lord gives and the Lord takes away the comfort He gave and He replaces it with affliction. And it would be very American of us, very prosperity gospel of us to see that as being contrary to the gentleness of God. It certainly wouldn't be biblical. Job did not see God as he came to see God without affliction. I had heard of you with my ears, but now I've seen you and I repent in dust and ashes. The psalmist says it was when he was afflicted that he then learned how to be obedient to the word of God. Jesus, Hebrews, also says, learned obedience by what he suffered. And you and I will not have a heart like Jesus without God's gentle afflictions in our life. 
Would that we could be excused from them. But as per Jonah, we see that we really do need that kind of love. We need afflictions to grow. We need to be taught through afflictions by God. And so as the story goes, Jonah is so severely discomforted in his hoping for God's wrath that he just asks again to die. And if it were only about his discomfort, right, we feel with with Job. And maybe if it were only about his discomfort here, we would feel with Jonah. We might understand. But as we're pressed into verse 9, and God repeats this question, do you do well to be angry for the plant? We're let in on the fact that this is, again, mainly about Jonah just being awful. It's about his anger. Jonah has anger management problems. And they always stem from a petty, narrow, self-centered sense of being unfairly treated by God, which of course is something that does not exist as a reality. You have an idea of how things ought to go and how those things ought to go for you and God who is good and knows best for you has other heart cultivating plans in mind that chafe against us. But how desperately we need that chafing. Do you do well to be angry? Verse 9, for the plant. And without hesitation, without blushing, the prophet of God retorts to God, yes, I do. I do do well to be angry. I do well to be angry enough to die. Man, I hope that Jonah is a young man here. When I hear things like that, But you know, that's really just how we all tend to think, act, and speak until we grow up in Christ, as we ought. We major on minors. We minor on majors. We idolize our comforts. We need our Snuggies, right? God, don't take away my Snuggie. I will be angry with you. He's just trying to get you to grow up. I don't like that. I like extended adolescence, spiritually. Leave me alone. I'm angry about that. Don't grow up. We make poor use of God's gifts. We love His grace to us so long as it doesn't hurt us. We love His grace to us so long as we don't have to share it with anybody else. We love His grace to us while wishing ill on others. And should ill befall us, we say really childish and disproportionate things like, you're darned right, I'm right to be angry about the plant. I have the right to tell you, God, how and when and where I demand that you be gracious to me. And it is only grace, like the perfection of infinite grace, that can respond as God does in verses 10 and 11. He drives home the lesson 
that ought to change Jonah. You pity the plant, the little thing on your windowsill. I know it was nice, but you didn't labor for it. You didn't make it grow. It came into being in a night. It perished in a night. And you pity that plant. And should not I, the eternal God, this eternal Savior, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also, by the way, a lot of cattle. That is an adult talking. That is God talking. That's God expositing His heart in the hope that Jonah's heart and our heart will go, oh, He got me. I see and I repent. God help me to repent. Jonah pities a perishing plant more than a perishing populace of people. Folks, of course, always get caught up on the cows, the cattle. I just think God's tearing things for Jonah here. Plants, animals, people, Jonah. Jonah would have been better pitying the cows of Nineveh than the plant on the outskirts. How much more? Thousands of divine image bearers. The Ninevites were evil, but they were people. The Ninevites were enemies, but they were people. And therefore, as people, they were the chief objects of God's saving pity. As we drill down there, what's really been exposed then is Jonah's heart for himself. Jonah doesn't pity the plant for its own sake. Jonah pities the plant because the plant benefited Jonah. Jonah didn't create it. He didn't cultivate it. He didn't even know it for more than a day. All he knows is that it helped him. It comforted him. It was nice to him. And that that plant should perish. My life is over. But that so many people should perish in their sins. Again, grab the popcorn. There is zero concern on Jonah's part. There is zero pity. Is what's true of Jonah true of you and me? Oh, our, our soundboard, it's on the fritz. Our speakers too. Our budget is fragile. Our basketball net out there, it's frayed, torn. Our garden is decaying. Our yard is diseased. I know. 
Our phones are cracked and damaged. Our oven is dead, although Bill fixed it. Praise the Lord for Bill. Our energy, our comforts, our idols are perishing. Alarm, care, compassion, concern, pity. Like Jonah for the plant. Neighbor, however, going to hell in the handbasket their sins have made for them. Whatever. No big deal. No mind to it. No concern. No love. No pity. No heart to see them saved. Learn the lesson that God puts in a question. Should not I pity Nineveh? Should not God pity souls, immortal souls, who are bound for wrath? Because if God should, shouldn't the godly? Shouldn't you and I? Church, listen. Lack of pity for perishing people grieves our God greatly. God knows the Ninevites' evil far more than Jonah. If anyone has a right to hate and vanquish all of his enemies, it's God. God did labor for them. He did develop them. He did know each one of the persons in that great city. And he's done that. He's known them from all eternity. And knowing they could never benefit him like the plant benefited Jonah, but only really despise him, which we know because Christ came into the world and we've seen it played out in front of us. God yet pitied those peoples and he saved them. That's the heart of God. You want to know the heart of God? That's the heart of God. And that's the lesson for Jonah. And it is a pity, it seems, that Jonah will not learn it as yet. If verses 5 through 11 in our passage are a flashback, to chapter 3, verse 4. I think it is. It means that Jonah preached to Nineveh. And then, after preaching, chapter 3, verse 4, after preaching, then, chapter 4, verse 5, then Jonah went outside the city, not yet knowing what would happen. You see, in verses 1 to 3, he knows. Not yet knowing what would happen, but hoping for the worst, which God, in verses 5 to 11 in our passage, then addresses in lieu of grace. He's about to pour out grace on Nineveh. I should pity Nineveh, Jonah, and I will pity Nineveh, Jonah, and Jonah, you should too. But then what that means is that our verses 1 to 3, where Jonah's all ticked, that's his response to that, as well as a tragic end to the story. It means the lesson given in all enduring grace, in all enduring gentleness, fell on deaf ears as yet. The relenting God Sovereignly relented, 
Jonah persists in ungodly anger about it, and God then returns to what proves to be the send-off of this little book. And it's that question again in verse 4. Do you do well to be angry with my administration of saving sovereign grace? The answer for us is no. If we're angry with it, we do not do well. If we regret it, we do not do well. If we run away from it, we do not do well. If we're like Jonah, we do not do well. Beloved, if in all this we're thinking, oh, oh, that Jonah, that Jonah, how could he? I would never. Instead of, Lord, forgive me. Change me. Make me more like Jesus in this. We have not let the text of Jonah deal with our hearts. And we may be more like Jonah than we think. It's in this vein that Mark Dever comments, quote, the idea of God's global concern may not be strange to us anymore. But what is, is seeing lives committed to living out God's concern for others. What is, is a love that moves, that mobilizes us in mercy to those who may very well hate us for the message we have for them. And what I'd have us see then is that God leads the way for us in this. He does not keep His place above. No. He puts Himself where His mouth is. 800 years later, Jesus. having come down to us, would also go outside the city. Not of Nineveh, but of Jerusalem. And not to sit in hope for the destruction of sinners, but as the very incarnation of the heart of God to be crucified for the salvation of sinners. There Christ died God's Lamb taking away the sins of the world. Oh my Lord Jonah. Friend, church, salvation belongs to the Lord. If you're lost and unbelieving this morning, God is a gracious God and merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding 
in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. If you will just repent and believe in Jesus, God will relent and He will save you. And so we just urge you with all our hearts this morning that you would take Him up on His pity today. Dear ones, I'd urge us to be a far better reflection than Jonah was of our big-hearted God. I'd urge us to apply the big message of this little book. Once more, salvation belongs to the Lord. Let that truth move us out by His grace to us, even from the depths of our sin, to our enemies ready to preach the gospel with a God-sized vision for simple faithfulness. And as He does, as He is, gracious, merciful, relenting, let us learn to rejoice. That our God saves at all. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for Jonah. How we ask that you would make the big message of this little book to live in us and to make us like yourself, big-hearted, full of grace, full of truth, full of Jesus, and by your mercy, full of fruit. We ask it in Jesus' name.